Metacognition is a podcast which celebrates the boundless frontiers of human thought and achievement and features those who live and work on the bleeding edge of modernity. Today, our assumptions about the way the world works break down in our increasingly networked, information-driven, and often chaotic global society. The guests we will bring to you on this podcast will challenge us to plunge courageously into this unfamiliar territory with the unprecedented degree of sophisticated and critical thought this realm demands. Here, you will get an intimate window into the lives and minds of the thought leaders, the trailblazers, the visionaries, those who define our changing lives with their ingenuity, perspicacity, and grit. I'm Joseph88, and this is Metacognition. Today, we are pleased to bring to you a mysterious personage, one who seems to subsume the popular culture, yet elude it all the while. This figure is Papa Bluey, the pioneering hula hoop practitioner, who has worked tirelessly for decades to transmute his discipline from a club drug tarnished province of middle America's working class to a high art finding its place on the tongues of the East Coast intelligentsia and the West Coast billionaire technocracy. In our effort to contextualize the man in a socio-cultural, psychoeconomic metaphysic, we sent our very own Yabron E. to interview Bluey in his native town of Indianapolis, the hearth of hula hooping culture as such. In their lengthy discussion, Bluey walks Yabron through topics ranging from the circus to competitive hula hoop pipeline, celebrities' role in culinary entrepreneurship, the digital body art phenomenon, and the QR code fashion revolution. Papa Bluey was beyond generous with his time and creative energy, and he's conferred upon us the singular honor previewing the soundtrack to the solo routine he is set to debut in Krakow this coming May. You'll hear this groundbreaking playlist in the background of the podcast as Bluey graciously streams it from his mp3 tattoo, courtesy of Ray Cool. Adulation and awe notwithstanding, I think you'll find the famously hermetic artist wields a disarming and charitably inspirational voice, one which we welcome in these uncertain times. With that, I will delay no further. Please enjoy Papa Bluey. Hello, this is Gibran E. I'm here with Papa Bluey. Who is who is doing his introductory sequence, an original routine featuring several songs, which he feels brings out his scandalous side. Here he is. This is Papa Bluey, the man, the legend. The Hula Hooper. Hey, Jabron. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, really excited to be here today. Uh, thanks for letting me hoop on in. I kind of like to psych up for stuff like this. You know, that's my happy place. So let's get into it. Uh, I've never been on an interview show before, so I don't know exactly how it works, but uh, just let you drive the experience, I guess. Well, I appreciate your enthusiastic entrance and what we really try to do on this show is we try to get in the heads 
of those who define a niche. Um, we try to explore the topic of the niche as such, and we feel that you have in a way defined three decades of hula hooping and are among the only American full-time hula hoopers. So could you talk a little bit about your translation of a popular pastime from the early 2000s to a career? Yeah, you know, it's funny for me because um, my life is just, it's hoop life 24-7. Like, I just kind of live in the hula hooping world, and you were talking about that being a niche, and it's one of those things when you meet up with uh, the extended family for Christmas, and you go back home, you may, or maybe you don't go back home, but, you know, you realize, okay, hey, I'm, I've stumbled into something really special here where, you know, there's a lot of free expression and people's personal attitudes are just in a better place than they are for some other people. And I feel, I feel lucky about that. And that's kind of what's kept me in the hoop world so long is that's kind of the moment to moment experience of it. I don't, I've been doing it so long. I don't really think about the technicals of, Oh, you know, that's just comes naturally. I've been winning competitions for so long and I'm, just following my own curiosity and inspiration at this point but uh the moment to moment is like i love the world of right hula hooping. i feel so grateful that it is like you say a niche that um has enough momentum behind it that i can have a full career and do it full time so it's a blessing so one of the things that many of the listeners are clearly wondering is how did indianapolis become the hula hooping capital of the world after vast swaths of industry left, how did hula hooping play a role? I mean, I mean, the, your name Bluey comes to mind, and and there have obviously been slurs and and sort of regional critiques. But could you, could you talk a little bit about Indianapolis's history? Sure. So uh, Indianapolis, uh, as you said, is definitely the headquarters of the hooping scene uh, these days. And uh, are we are we allowed to talk about drugs on this? Tell your story, man. Okay. Okay. Well, if I don't know if this would be, I think this is okay because you know everyone's gone to jail and stuff, so it's kind of public knowledge. But um. Well, it used to be all the, you know, LSD and club drugs in the dance music industry were made in Boston, Massachusetts on the East Coast. But um, as you know, in 2008, or maybe you don't know, I don't know, uh, you know, Astronaut Orange was like the premier tab. And that, uh, I forgot his real name, but the Astronaut Orange guy decided to move to Indianapolis from Boston because... I mean, I don't blame him. Rent in Boston is what, like 800 bucks a month and you can live in Indianapolis for like a couple hundred bucks a month. So for, uh, you know, a guy who makes Astronaut Orange, that's probably made sense. Um, and the scene just followed him there. I mean, like there were already burns going on in Indianapolis with hoop events and, um, you know, professional events were happening there too. But it just really took off because a lot of the VIPs were coming to town all the time, were moving there totally to be close to Astronaut Orange. Um, so I really attribute it 
to the drug mostly, and I know that's not the, uh, you know, politically correct advertised story, but that's, I think that's why. So, is this why you still to this day hoop with an orange hoop? So that's actually not why I hoop with an orange hoop, although that is, a lot of people say that, and I've sometimes told people that just, you know, is like a joke, but... Actually, the orange hoop dates back to uh, my Barnum and Bailey days. So uh, I had worked at another circus that, you know, first gig. It was all the first gig stuff, and I was not proud of who I am, who I was, or where I was. And um, I ended up getting a gig at Barnum and Bailey, and that I was only working part time, but it seemed like. I'd finally, you know, had a legitimate gig where I was mostly hooping, mm-hmm. you know. And it, when we were on the road, it was all day, living hoop life. That was my first really 24-7 t- taste of hoop life. And I had an orange hoop in our uh, rainbow color lineup, so uh, that's why I stick with orange. It's just kind of, that's what it feels like a professional hoop should be. Beautiful, beautiful. And... Um... I think that we're going to switch gears here a little bit. I want to talk about how very similar viewers who have not actually watched the Hoop Hop Championships um, don't understand that it really does resemble like Olympic figure skating in many ways. You get the entire rink to yourself and you have your own routine, you have your own soundtrack, many of which you've produced. You've produced your own soundtracks. We're actually listening to Fergalicious, which you had and played an integral part uh, produce, as, as a producer. Yeah, I was, I was lucky to be a part of this song, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, first of all, how you met Fergie and what you then uh, contributed to the track? Uh, we can edit this podcast, right? Uh, we generally don't, don't know, edit, but I, we okay. I mean, we I, are I, not in the interest of defaming you. I've I've never done an interview before, so I'm not sure exactly. But if I can say how I met Fergie, because I mean, if she, we can sort it out later. I'll tell the story. Um, so we were at this club together in Miami. We we weren't going together, but um, we just both happened to be there, and it's a beautiful night, man. Like uh. I was just really vibing with the tunes and the music and it I don't know if you're anywhere in the nightlife but it's a really magic feeling sometimes you get this DJ and you're in, on a dance floor with hundreds of people and everyone's just in these outrageous attention grabbing jackets and you know all that stuff and everyone's just trying to make a statement but for all of that to just go away and it's just you the music and that expression with for me it's with the hoop so you brought your hoop to the dance floor yeah that's it's my thing you know um but uh yeah it was just one of those beautiful nights that happens once or you know twice a year and ferg was there and she was also riding that vibe and we met on the dance floor and she's kind of just very intuitive you know physical link was forming and uh, we had some drinks afterwards and stuff and I didn't have a Fergie affair it was very just you know love just between all humans a deep connection that was like spiritual and about our motivations and stuff and uh, 
we were talking about music and what makes club music compelling and she invited me to come to the recording studio uh, the next day and they were working on the song for Galicious so I got to have a bit of input on that which you know very lucky to have input on a high profile track and an honor to work with an artist like that who's inspired so many people right right so you were primarily an advisor you just kind of talked about levels and and, and different overdubs or what well I have this theory that uh, certain samples when you're on uh, club drugs correspond to like biological functions of the body. So I just kind of keep a list in my kitchen like, you know, um, certain bases correspond to going to the bathroom and farting and stuff like that. And then you might have like a treble synth that kind of is like a sneeze uh, or a gurgle and then stuff like that. So. Um, Anyways, I had accumulated a sample library meant to provoke certain physical uh, actions in people in a more suggestive state. And we ended up using some of my samples. Um, we used one for crying. It was a violin sample. Um, it's been manipulated, but you can hear it in the mix. And uh, we also used my uh, fart sounds actually uh it was not because we wanted to provoke gas but because there's a certain like easiness to it so in the intro you hear there's a bass synth and that's actually from my sample pack too so but that was my little contribution well brilliant and i think that this actually i'm glad we're having this transition right now i think that this very uh it's is, is a nice segue to your first foray into uh, choreography and you were able to get 370, was it? If I'm getting the number right, you got 370 lay people to listen to your soundtrack, playlist, whatever you want to call it, that was produced by these samples, these, these uh, 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 human behavior programming samples, and you were able to get lay people to all hula hoop in unison. And that was, what, what was that? That was the 2003... Uh, championship where you 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 got the highest score in history, I believe. You know that's it's kind of interesting. Um, that's one of those events that it in a day. Looking back on it, I did so much that defined the story of my life. But all those things had just been building up gradually, and that day was really just execution. You know, I'd already visualized doing that stuff so much that it. It doesn't even feel like it's really just one day's worth of work. So um, winning the competition was one of the best days of my life. Um, but I think it's kind of unrelated to the group hula hoop thing. So I'll do the group hula hoop thing first. So um, my gig um, before Barnum and before I got into the professional hooping circuit was working for uh, a smaller circus company, uh, John Beardman's Nine Beards, Nine Tenths. That was seriously what it was called. <laughs> it was like, you know, American South, like, a, I mean, I'm from Seneca, North Carolina, if you even know where that is. No. It's outside Clemson, South Carolina. It's a nowhere town of a nowhere town. Oh. And it's just, um, Anyway, you know, I was the first circus I had an opportunity to join when I was 17, I was there. And I worked with them for, for six years, and 
like I said a minute ago, you know, you have all the first gig woes and whatever, but it was also a time for me to find find my place and find my calling. And in the last year I was working with John, um, I had been going to Burns for about a year before that and discovering the scene, but that's when I started to think about the professional events. Um, and so I'd been training for, I mean, I've been hooping my whole life, but I've been focusing on competition, uh, professional competition events for over a year. Because uh, I stopped working with John and then I got the gig with Barnum and it had off season time and that's when I decided I was going to compete professionally. Uh, and while I was with John, I, I did hoop, but I did other parts of the show. I mean, it, you had to do the whole circus thing uh, to be in a company like that. And one of them was Audience Participation Act. And that's actually where I first got into classifying samples with bodily functions. And back then, they were a lot less subtle. Uh, so I'm not sure, I'd be a bit embarrassed if some of those sounds ended up, yeah, I had a slowed down hippopotamus sound that you know was meant to imitate snoring i manipulated the dinosaur sounds from jurassic park and i had people with earwax just oozing out of their ears wow, like, wow. it it was a uh is more extreme than what i go for now but yeah we uh, basically you know at, as an intermission moment we had cheap hoops for everybody and i had you know the pro quality one and we just kind of lead the audience in calisthenics and john's idea was like um you know well, first off, you know, they need to rest. The beards get really sweaty from like, you know, doing the whole set. And so they needed to buy some time, but they also wanted the audience to be getting hyped. And, you know, a lot of circuses will let, give the audiences downtime to just buy popcorn and, you know, the different toys. But his thing was he wanted people to give back the energy that we give to them, which I actually kind of like that philosophy. So he'd have, one of the in-between segments was my aerobics thing. I play the samples as like a gag, but the real point was the leading hoopers. And I had led groups probably up to 150. And when I was gonna compete in the first competition, a friend of mine, uh, Ricky Rainbow, um, from the Burn community, he, he was doing all the kind of like, um, you know, stuff between the competitions, uh, matches, like where they plug companies and have giveaways and stuff like that. And he asked me if there was anything I wanted to do. And I just thought, why not do the hula hoop participation? And it didn't occur to me that it would be the world record for largest lead leading of a hula hoop event, you know, in human history. So I actually ended up getting two world records wow. that day. And it's, it's so funny, you know, I'm, I'm a lot of things, um, Papa Blue is a lot of things, but I'm not like a manager. I'm an artist, you know? I, so I'll, I'll come right out and say I'm not a manager and I thank my lucky stars that I met up with Grizzly Harris when I did because he just is like, he's let me, he's the difference between me doing this for John Beardman and doing this full time on my own terms. So uh, I met Grizzly uh, almost six months after that competition and he's the one actually that pointed out to me that those were world record setting events. And then, we, you know, there's a whole process actually for getting those recognized and registered, but yeah. he helped me with that. Yeah, and there are just a million different threads running here. I'm thinking about trying to give the audience who doesn't really know your work, who doesn't really know 
who you are personally because you are a very charming guy to talk to in real life i know that there are a lot of claims because you're you're just behind this veil of um your illustrious career and i'm i'm wondering if around this time you got in touch with vladimir john andrasik the third um and ultimately realized that hey we are doppelgangers hey we could have pretty much come from the same womb, so to speak. I mean, it, it, it's it's really remarkable. And the fact that, I know you're being humble, but the third record that you broke that night was most uncanny, just dead ringer of any sort of celebrity. Just the, the performance that when, when you, I mean, and it also is quite emotional, when you started to break out into Superman at the very end and you brought all of the Hoopers down to the ground, but the hula hoops never quite touched the ground. I mean, chills. That that was one of the most emotional, just almost like just just raw. It, it didn't even feel theatrical. It was just like human compassion personified and transmitted throughout the entire audience. I mean, I was lucky enough to be in the audience. Um, I, I think that probably changed the course of my career. It was. Thank you for all the kind words, by the way. It's nice to get talked up. Uh, I'm usually just working, you know, every day, so it's nice nice to think about some of these uh, highlights of my career. So, uh, Vlad, who we just have always called him Glad, Glad Vlad. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, but yeah, when I met Vlad, is at a hooping competition uh, in 2000 eight or nine but you know we started collaborating 2012 and you're right uh for anyone i guess who hasn't seen us he does look exactly like me which is the whole secret because um you know i just come from the american south but i have very kind of uh russian uh what do you could say eastern european kind of look and he's estonian and we actually are dead ringers for each other and uh what vlad uh, did for me was he enabled me to merge my individual expression with the expression of a larger group. Uh, because he, what he had been doing was synchronized hooping events in places like Israel, and he'd even uh, led festivals in Thailand, Morocco. Like, he was on an international circuit that I was not on at all. But he kind of opened my eyes to, hey, hooping is not just, you know, people popping speed pills in you know white trash towns and going to town on a hoop like it's art uh it can be collective it can be participatory like you there's he broke down the audience performer divide for me uh, which was very inspiring and you know as you said uh at that first uh hoop off that had a group uh act in the united states he choreographed with the group for their whole role. And because he looks exactly like me, they were able to practice with him and with me, and it was a seamless transition. Mm -hmm. And what he would do is he'd train them, and then I could, on my own, work on my Superman character. And I just showed up, I don't think, probably only three or four times did I actually do the performance with the group before we competed which is amazing when you think it took 18 months for each of us 
for all of us working full time to prepare that routine. So I was working 18 months on my own and I only spent three days with the group after Glad had been preparing them. It's pretty amazing. So um, yeah, I definitely, none of any of the group collective hoops stuff would have ever been a part of my life if I hadn't met Vlad and uh, grateful. Yeah, mm -hmm. every day. Yeah, he's a, he's a really great guy. We're he trying is. to get him on the podcast. And I, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it, it would be really an honor oh. if we could kind of have both of you because, you know, there are the conspiracy theorists out there that think you're both the same person and you just dress differently, you oh, cut your no. hair. Well, the thing is, like, I, it's because Vlad and I, there's a misunderstanding because we both need a lot of private time, you know, because what we do is physical, but it's also introspective. We're, we're expressing with our body. And anyone who's a high-performance athlete knows you, know, you need time just to stay in peak physical shape. That mm -hmm. takes time. It's not social. You just, it's you and your own limits and you know, being disciplined. And then to be introspective on top of that and to be an artist on top of that, you know, we're not very public people. Mm -hmm. So um, I think just because we're less public, people imagine like, oh, well, I didn't see anything from Vlad last week. and. Here's Papa Bluey on this thing, you know, like, um, so no, but do, you should talk to, uh, Vlad, in a couple months, actually, he's doing the, uh, 30 day inversion challenge. Um, wow, what is, no, have, have not oh heard of that gosh. one. Oh my gosh, this is really cool. Okay, so they've been doing it two years, at, or this is going to be the second year, and what it is, is all these gymnasts, I, the first year, I don't know how many people did it, but I think there's 16 now. Mm -hmm. um, all just like incredible. There's two Olympians, world class, and uh, they commit to, as soon as they wake up, uh, they walk on their hands for 30 days. You know, um, anytime they would have normally used their feet, they use their hands, and mm -hmm. they just commit to be upside down and invert their muscle groups for 30 days, which is just amazing. I mean, mm -hmm. like, it's just very inspiring to everybody, I think. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are a lot of talks. I mean, obviously you're in the fitness, wellness arena. There's a lot of talk about how literally reversing one's biology, reversing one's tendencies leads to some radical health benefit. I mean, I know that you've collaborated with Tony Robbins on a book about just completely transforming everything that you do. And if you're a shy person... Uh, Perhaps, you know, changing your favorite color from blue to green or, or, or rather red to blue and, and just, just changing your wardrobe can make you a talkative person. And how you can just make these small decisions in your life that have these radical ripple effects is, is inversion uh, a big part of your life philosophy and redefining oh, yourself. Oh, yeah. Because, well, um, in that collaboration with Tony, basically, I, he used my inversion method and then he came up with all the kind of individual strategies and techniques where to me it was kind of just like uh, meditation or hypnosis in the abstract or something. Uh, I knew that it was for exploration of, you know, internal exploration, but I hadn't really written down specific strategies. Um, I guess for people out there who don't know, the, the premise is being upside down, inversion, is also a reverse time psychologically. 
uh, and you can do different things while you're inverted to accelerate that reverse time, just like you could do things standing up to accelerate your psychological growth. And the idea is, you know, a lot of the problems that are not problems, but relationships, dynamics that define us are from our childhood. So if we can be inverted and go reverse fast enough, we can regress to a child state and start to rebuild. You know, from there, we can explore, you know, I'm six years old, what do I see? And it's interesting because all your sensations and stuff are different as a child and you get to revisit that. And it's really amazing and humbling that, wow, all these things I do are just from, you know, some random thing when I was six years old. But you can revisit that place while you're inverted and confront that memory with what you know now and then kind of rebuild and move forward. And that's, that's the technique. Please pardon the brief interruption and take a moment for a message from one of our sponsors. Ray Cool Tattoos has an ironclad record of reinventing body art for the digital era. Perhaps you've heard of Ray's groundbreaking digital ink technology, which introduces transhumanism into the tattoo arena through implementing audiovisual interfaces on the bodies of her subjects. Don't have the cash to pay up front? Ray's got your back. She'll set you up with her patented QR code TAT so you can pay off that pesky bill with ad revenue paid by Ray Cool's generous sponsors. Wow. To learn more about Ray's body art for the digital era or to set up an initial consultation, please visit raycoolisthebest.com. That's raycoolisthebest.com. And, like, yeah, I understand that, that there's just a tremendous amount of even just what you manifest physically really represents your your personality your life philosophy everything everything is very integrated oh, about you have you seen um the picture series online that uh, uh, okay um so this was with time out and i i didn't provoke this on my own obviously but it was really interesting that this came out and crazy that i had a chance to be part of the inspiration for it but after i did that book with tony um you know, millions of people bought that book. And in Time Out, they did a photo series of the different uh, physical deformities that evolved as people did the inversion therapy. And, you know, people just have these massive warts that look like their brother when the brother was four years old. And, uh, you know, or a piece of playground equipment shows up as a scar. Um, people's legs get stuck in the shape of razor scooters and stuff like that it's, it's just odd and amazing the physical the physicality of this technique um you physically express the things that you're concerned with and you have to go to physical therapy to resolve that because that's my theory on this is that it's our nervous system is stored all this information and then when it bubbles up and is physically manifest it offers it up and then if we care for the body and recover the body to where it was before that offering then that offering is dissipated out into the world and resolved and we can move forward from there okay but it to to the layman it, it, it seems kind of counterproductive because you're trying to it, you, you, you're, you're trying to reinvent yourself and, and right any wrongs, but in reality, in, in many cases, you become the wrong that you're trying to right quite 
literally. For instance, like if you're afraid of sharp objects, you expose yourself to knives and, and with, the, with perhaps the goal of becoming a knife thrower or a professional chef. And then when your hand starts to take the shape of the literal knife, you just kind of get a, a, a big critique. It's not necessarily mine. I've had my own successes, but the fact that your 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 physical changes become an encumbrance uh, when when you're when you're considering your original goal. Well, yes, I've heard I've heard that um, critique, and in the book, I mean. In the book, we say this is this is a journey. You, know, you could compare it to any sort of internal transformation journey. I personally believe that I'm sure there are all the types of therapy could achieve what's achieved through inversion therapy. That was just my journey, and I want to share it as a book. But it takes time. You know, you are diving deep within inside inside yourself, and you know it might take two years. And I had the luxury of being a performer who had on-season and off-season, and then off-season I would do these explorations, and the physical uh, manifestations weren't an encumbrance to me. But um, I understand some people live a very non-stop life and only have 10 spare minutes here or there. And in the book I say if you're serious about personal transformation, you just have to invest the time. But I. So I don't know, maybe this just isn't the approach for everyone. If you're looking for a 10 minute a day approach, I'm not sure if you can really uh, solve all those problems with the 10 minute a day approach, but maybe someone has one. But I, I won't claim that inversion therapy is for those people. Okay, fair enough. I, I guess we'll just have to wait for uh, Kiyosaki's next book, which is coming in May. I, I, do, I do have to steer in the direction because I know that he directed a lot of your technology projects and um, financed it, perhaps wasn't really on the design side. I know that you had your own engineering team, but I want to talk a little bit about your MP3 tattoo and how, like, if, if you could just roll up your sleeve a little bit for the, for the camera. Um, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll just, like, take, we'll put it on our Instagram Live, so, like, those of you listening, you can literally see the sort of LCD-like tattoo that uh, Louis got on his arm and it's actually producing very sort of studio quality audio and, and it, the way that it kind of... Well, there's, song, there's songs from the upcoming routine. Yeah, but it's, it's true to, to be in this room that has fa fairly professional great acoustics, but definitely not, it, it, no, no serious ensemble would use it. This is a podcast. This is not, you know... Or orchestral work or anything like that. So, could you talk a little bit about how your MP3 tattoo sort of uses that signal to reshape the acoustics and redefine the sound of any room? Sure. So, uh, it's uh, it's a tattoo from Ray Cool, and it uses a technology called Dynamic Ink. And what Dynamic Ink is is like most tattoos, the premise is that they go under your layers of skin, you deposit ink down there, and it's just enough under the skin that it'll never uh, disappear or shed out, but you don't go so deep that you touch tissue with the ink. So uh, Ray's technique though is that it's a double needle, so there's a needle that goes as deep as a normal tattoo, but below it there's a needle that goes deeper and hits a muscle group. 
And then that muscle group is what leads to this, lets it change shape like this and be basically a screen. And the muscle group is also what's producing the sound, actually. So uh, there's a program that is on this little earpiece here, and then this earpiece is connected directly to my brain, and it it controls the tattoo and causes my muscles to flex up and down, and that's obviously changing the shape of the tattoo because a certain muscle contraction mm -hmm. leads to just skin color, and a certain muscle contraction leads to black or whatever any color, and. If you look really close, mm -hmm. you can see just about a hair hair thickness, maybe a bit more than a hair thickness worth right. of oscillation going on. Yeah. And that's like a speaker cone basically on my arm. Uh-huh. And that's that's what's moving the air that produces the sound. Now I I don't actually know all the technology for how the sound is acoustically amplified. Um from such a small mm -hmm. movement to such the full sound we hear in the room. Um, I know that he, there, it was a team from MIT that conceived it, mm -hmm. uh, the Brainworks lab, but I don't actually know all the math. I think it's some pretty intense stuff. I mean, okay, it's nothing we learned in high school for sure. Okay. At I least mean, not in Seneca. Right, right, right. I mean, it, at least it is just extremely, uh, it, it's extremely impressive and I was very, I'm glad I've got one. I love this thing. Yeah, and, and I, I just want to, to the, to, can you can you uh, pull your hair back a little bit? Uh, he's, uh, uh, Blue's kind of grown his hair. Um, yeah, just we want to post this on our Instagram. Uh, and don't poke this because I'll pass out. Yeah, yeah, but hanging from it is is the QR code where listeners, you can you can install this, uh, this uh, tattoo uh, at home and you can all get it. Uh, basically, any what what are you on? You're on Google Play. You're on the Apple Store. Yeah, for, for pretty the much anywhere. On any of the stores, but I think uh, the tattoo has to actually be bought through Ray's website. Oh, okay. Which okay. is raycoolisthebest.com. Okay. Okay. Excellent. And um, so cool. Can can we talk a little bit about how um, your QR code uh, fashion statement was? It sort of redefined personal marketing, it redefined blogging, it redefined uh, pretty much consumer culture in the United States. And I want to pause to give thanks to Moustache Foods for their stalwart support of the Metacognition podcast. Whether it's catering our events with their irresistible cuisine or funding us directly, they always make their presence known in our lives and challenge us to do our very best work. And our work just wouldn't be our best without plugging Moustache's new Back to Basics meal kits. Don't have time for Sunday evening meal prep? Head on over to Moustache Foods for weekly care packages containing meals you'll love. My personal favorite is the VR Dinner Series, which lets you travel the world each night when you sit down for dinner. Mingle with the locals and discover regional cuisines that'll feed the adventurer within. For an exclusive 20% off the Back to Basics meal plan, head on over to moustachefoods.com metacognition and enter the promo code JOSEPH88 to receive this limited time offer. Thanks again to Moustache Foods. Now back to the program. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the uh, QR code revolution in sort of social networking? Well, you you really build me up a lot. I mean, I, I was part of a, a cultural shift and uh, honored to be a part of a cultural shift. I had a routine where, well, for 
let me back up and say, as, as a pro hooper, we often show on a lot of skin. And part of the show is our own physical appearance and how do we express in our body, how are we going to hold the strength to pull off what we do? do? You know, some people have a lot of muscles in their legs. Some people try to be very trim. Uh, some of the endurance athletes who are hooping for like, you know, 20, 25 days nonstop, just hooping, they, they'll have more fat because they have to store energy for those long events. Um, and so each event kind of has a look that goes with it. But I was thinking to myself, okay, my skin is the show. Why don't I, you know, tap into that? So that's why I started performing in colors. And then QR codes were a thing. And I thought, okay, I'm on TV and, or, you know, being videoed all the time. And that was at the time where if you had a QR code in a YouTube video, your phone automatically would render it and pull it off the website. So I thought, what if I painted myself in a way that could possibly trigger the QR code uh, or maybe even trigger multiple of them depending on my pose. And that's when it got really interesting. And Vlad figured out all the science of it and hired some guy from Brainworks and he came over and painted me and we did experiments where I'd perform in front of a camera and we'd load it onto a cell phone and see what URLs popped up and there were a lot of misspelled URLs. Just it's it's a process. It did not happen mm -hmm. overnight. But um, once we got it working, it is obviously pretty incredible, and it got me some cool opportunities. You know, I got to hoop on ABC, and everybody who watched that, we had millions of hits on my website in a single day. And before that, I don't think we even had two million hits total. Uh, it was a really cool moment. Yeah, everyone gets their 15 minutes of fame, I guess. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really is spectacular. Just, just the way you bring, again, you bring movement back into it. You bring physicality back into it and, and expression and, and music. I mean, I, I, I often, you, you trigger my favorite songs. I hold my phone up to your dances and your, and your hula hoop routines, and I end up hearing, you know, uh, that I'm blue song. I never remember the title, but I, I mean, I love it when you go on the view. Blue eyes, D W died. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Love that tune. Yeah. My so namesake. exactly, and and I think I, we just kind of all picture you as the guy who who sort of is the ambassador for that style. Yep. And when when we look back to even like video games, I remember you had your first video game deal uh, in the, like the mid two thousands. And you actually were, you know, the you were actually controversially the only character in the game. You you couldn't kind of re up, and you couldn't really represent yourself in different ways. But instead, like one of the things that I really got from that was, hey, look, look, like Papa Bluey's not trying to be self-aggrandizing anyway in any way uh, to the exclusion of your own personal expression, but rather, I mean, you. I was able to dress you up exactly how I was feeling any day and, and like I would say the variety of accessories the variety of different outfits and different different moods you could represent in dressing you up and dressing you down um, really like it actually helped me figure out who I was as an individual and I, I, I began to dress I, I began to dress you up as a character in this RPG game 
and then I began to dress myself in a very similar fashion, and which eventually had ripple effects where I was like literally becoming a hula hooper, and and like because I was I was also following the inversion program at the time, and it, it got pretty confusing, but. Can, can you talk a little bit about the philosophy behind being the only human being in the entire yeah. game? Were you, uh, is this Hoop 05 or Hoop de Loop? Oh, no, this is Hoop de Loop. <laughs> well, you know, I was, had the unique pleasure and craziness of having a video game made just about a mythologized version of my story. And it, yeah, ESPN approached me to do it, and originally I was hoping that there'd be a lot of hoopers in the game, uh, and that I would, everyone would get a business cut, and I understood I'd probably be the main player, and I didn't have a problem with that for sure, but they really talked me into the idea that, no, your story is everybody's story. Mm -hmm. So... Once I kind of got that and understood that the character could be dressed up in all these different ways, I guess I was okay with it. Um, I definitely didn't expect it to have the impact that it did. Like when you tell me that it was a venue for you to explore your own expression and clothes and how you wanted, you know, the avatar to look as you went through your journey playing, you know, white trash circuses and mm -hmm. I don't know, just following my story. That's crazy. I mean, that's something I, I didn't appreciate at the time that we made the game. Uh, <laughs> kind of funny to to have a, a game with, you know, such a famous, uh, not age-appropriate hack in it uh, where... <laughs> you could say it. You could say it. Everyone oh, knows about it. The one where I stick the acid tabs up my nose. Yeah. Oh my god. I don't know how many seven and eight year olds got corrupted by that. I obviously did not put that in the game. That was some rogue programmer who thought that would be funny. Okay, so but, so you're corroborating the stories that those were indeed acid taps and not erasers or whatever they said oh, because well, it was a classroom scene. Okay. Well, whatever. I mean, no. I mean, we got you to I, say it live. I, I mean, mean see, I, they look like yeah. Like acid's legal. They, I mean, they, we, it's not like you, that's what it looks like to me in the in the video. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know who put that in the game for okay. kids, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, no, it is. It's it kind of Pixar esque, and it, it just like the adults can have a little fun because I mean, yeah. I guess people are always gonna put stuff like that in games if they're helping make it, and people are always gonna find it. And, you know, it's yeah, eventually, it eventually. So you're not a game developer yourself. No, yeah, I, I mean, I, my day-to-day -day with uh, the process with ESPN was like, we'd meet, talk about the concept for the game, and it was mostly, they already knew a lot about me mm -hmm. when they called, and they kind of knew the story and had professional writers and all that stuff, um, and I would tell them little things, like, oh, you know, the truck for the circus should look like this, mm -hmm. or oh, no, you know, to explain to them the difference between hoop feels and stuff for the different hoops in the game. Uh, some technical things, but mostly it was just them telling me, you know, how the, how the game would feel to a player. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I just hoop. I'm not like a gamer or anything, but mm -hmm. I wanted to understand what the experience would be if I, my name was going to be on it and everything. Mm -hmm. So, it was, I don't know, we probably met. 30 times.
30 days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Actually, actually, uh, it, you can come back later. Uh, we're, we're going to meet up after. Yeah. Thank you. We're actually in the middle of the podcast right now. Okay. Uh, that's, that's kind of funny time. Yeah, no, it's, it's cool. He's, he's, uh, it will talk later, but it's just kind of funny. Uh, I was just thinking about, um, Boogada Bop, your Indianapolis, uh, Peruvian chicken restaurant that you just opened up where you so pioneered the combination of Peruvian chicken and cosmic brownies and how they the, the flavors complement each other so perfectly to the point where look I the restaurant opened up right down my block one of your restaurants um, and hey you know like we, we cater lunches here our employees like are kind of like define the community define the culture like I give them gift cards. Like, like we are. We appreciate your business. No, I mean you. You've really redefined. First of all, like my energy level from consuming pretty much Peruvian chicken, which I don't even know really what that is, plus cosmic brownies. It's I have more energy than I ever have. Like my my skin. I I, I no longer have um, dryness of skin. I, I I my lupus has improved drastically. Uh, seborrheic dermatitis, obviously. I'm I bald, so I mean, if I if, if my hair, uh, rather, <laughs> I wish I had hair, but I mean, if my scalp becomes inflamed, I, I mean, I, I have to take two to three weeks at, at a time off of uh, broadcasting. So like, yeah, moisture matters. Uh, can can you talk about like? First of all, I'm interested in the nutrition philosophy behind your food because I know you hired um, master chefs and, and you have a, a very deep background in this. But could you talk about like what does uh, Bop mean for Indianapolis? What does it mean for us? Can, can, can we just like t- see the full picture here? Yeah. Well, uh, Bop is you know. It's part of a, a long story. Uh, I'm a high-performance athlete, so I've always been interested in unusual foods and diets that we, you know, complement my routine. And the Peruvian chicken cosmic brownie combination was just one of those things that you know a lot of different hoopers were trying out, and I got into it, and I really got into it, and got into you know developing the Peruvian chicken concept from just raw chicken with ice cubes, you know, like shoved in it to like a seasoned dish where it's like this chicken is served as cold and raw as possible, but you know, it's been marinated in juices and there's flavors and the brownie is integrated into the chicken and not served on the side and stuff. So anyway, um, luckily when you get when you get this far in a career like the one I've had, you have a lot of opportunities that come your way. And someone approached me about, I got approached uh, by this guy, uh, Nick Arreo, about uh, opening a restaurant and he asked what I want to be. And his ideas were kind of doing cuisines that were already out there. And I thought, you know, I've just never really had success hooping by copying somebody else. So I thought, I want to make a restaurant that's, you know, there's no restaurant like it. So I started considering things from my diet as a high-performance athlete that might also appeal to a general eating population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the nutrition of Peruvian chicken and cosmic brownies, like you said, basically um, it comes from this idea that people misunderstand 
uh, which nutrients are important. And vitamins, minerals, micronutrients, they're not that important. And what you really just want is a lot of sugar and a lot of fat. And processed fat is better because it stays in your body longer. So it's kind of like an insurance policy energy wise. Mm -hmm. And sugar is great because it makes you feel awesome right now. So it like rewards you for eating and you kind of want to eat as much as possible so you always have energy. Um, so that's kind of the logic behind it. Um, but the meals I was cooking for myself, even though they taste great to me, they're not really maybe appropriate or the right serving sizes and ratios and everything and that's where I hired the professional chefs. I brought in a, a team from France, mm-hmm. uh, they were called Moustache, and they just watched me cook for like two or three days and asked me why and you know things I tried in the past that I wasn't doing anymore and mm-hmm. kind of showed them some trial and error stuff. And then they went mm-hmm. uh, back to France and came back after a couple months and cooked some meals for me. Mm-hmm. And wow. then, you know, we had some friends and family over and got their opinions on them, and we just kind of went from there. They helped me develop it kind of that last, you know, 10 or 15% where it's like, this is food I'm serving to others who lead a more normal nutrition, have more nu- normal nutritional needs, you know? Right, and in, in, the, in the process, I mean, we really do have maybe not just you, but your team. I mean, you've, you've, you've brought Mustache in and you, you know that we have close ties to them as, as they're one of our sponsors here, of course. But uh, you and your team have really redefined the anti-sugar, anti-fat propaganda that kind of dominated the, the, the beginning of the 21st century. So now, finally, things like insomnia things like anxiety, depression, OCD, really anything that has to do with neurological disorders um, is, is pretty much eradicated because we were able to look at our evolutionary code and think, okay, just logically, like you can, you can teach this to, to a layman. Yeah. What do we crave? It's just... Like, what do we want? You give us... You, you, you give yourself what you want and then you become an actualized human being. I know. It's like, it's just... And why delay gratification right. ever? Like, it's just so obvious. I, everybody has that, you know, 95-year-old grandma who just eats Pop-Tarts every morning. Mm-hmm. She's been eating Pop-Tarts, drinking Coke, you know, all the stuff that they said you weren't supposed to do. You know, she cooks with butter. Mm-hmm. And she's never going to die. She, You can't kill her, you know? And it's like, okay, well, what's going on there? I mean, in the hooping world, everybody kind of knew that stuff yeah I mean, there's always mainstream nutrition and then there's people who are pushing their body really hard and you kind of sink into this idea my nutritional needs are not going to be everybody's mm-hmm. and that frees you a little bit mm-hmm. you start to do your own experimentation and not take for granted that things should be a certain way so i was already eating a diet kind of like that but all the science that's been coming out in the past few years is really awesome and i especially love what you said about the mental illness effects it has because it's freed a lot of people you know just Mm -hmm. eating cosmic brownies you should not feel bad about that i mean load up on cosmic brownies if your body calls for those like m&m chocolate treats yeah yeah listen you know that voice is it doesn't come from nowhere yeah people used to think of sugar as an addiction 
That's like saying drinking water is an addiction. It's like you crave it yeah, for a reason. Yeah, Even yeah. babies crave it. I don't know. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, and especially you as an artist, you're all about following what you crave, scratching the itch, satisfying, and, and, and even inverting the terms of satisfaction onto the audience and just really creating this big atmosphere. So, yes. I mean, I, I, I just have to compliment your playlist that you brought in with us. Um, again, listeners, can you, can, you, can you show us your other earring for... Do you, do you also have the playlist this time? Oh, yeah, okay, great. So, yeah, you can download his playlist. This is... Um, this is Le Maestro, the genius himself, Papa Bluey. Uh, I, I just got to thank you so much for coming on. And seriously, anytime, anytime you are not in training, you're not developing one of your new applications, one of your new restaurants, I mean, you're just your numerous projects, please just stop by for any quick conversation you can, you can afford to have. All right, Gibran. And uh, if you ever want just a good time, uh... Let me know, and we'll, we'll go out for a night of hooping. All I, right. I got a hoop waiting for you in my car anytime. All right. Thank you, brother. Okay. It's an honor. Thanks. If you enjoyed this conversation, please keep an eye out for our future releases. As we continually engage with the most influential people of our time, we strive to publish those which we think will be most intriguing and valuable to listeners like you. To learn more about our work or to donate to this listener-supported project, please visit metacognitionpodcast.com. And we send our eternal gratitude to those who rate, review, and share this passion project of ours. We would ask our generous listeners to take no more than five minutes to provide your feedback via iTunes or Spotify and to share us through social media or word of mouth. Your praise and criticism keeps this vision operational and improving. Thank you, and we hope you join us next time. This has been Metacognition. Metacognition.